This is the Kol Hadash Podcast. The Jewish year is 5,780, and as we celebrate the high holidays of 2019, Rabbi Adam Shalom has chosen to reflect on the theme of old challenges anew. The next several episodes of the podcast will feature excerpts from our high holidays, of scripture or literature with a reflection, or the rabbi's sermon. This is part two, a sermon on anti-Semitism and other hatred. I chose to speak about anti-Semitism on Rosh Hashanah many months ago. Did I know that the problem would not be resolved by the end of year 5,779? Yes. Did I have any idea how much material from the news I would have? No. And since congregants appreciate high holiday humor, had I fully considered the challenge of working in jokes to a sermon on anti-Semitism? No. We have been told that those who forget their history are doomed to repeat it. Of course, new events are not exactly the same as historical precedents. Mark Twain supposedly said, history does not repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes. <laughs> After the Holocaust, we thought we understood the lesson of never again. But what was that lesson exactly? Was the lesson never again to any genocide, as Elie Wiesel called to the world's conscience during the 1990s Bosnian conflict? Was the lesson only never again to the Jews, so that saying never again to anything short of a full Holocaust is anti-Semitic appropriation? Was it never again to overcrowded indefinite detention centers? If so, then we also have a lot of work to do for the Chinese Uyghur Muslims whose mosques are being destroyed while tens of thousands are interned in re-education camps, or the purges of gay men in Chechnya, or the entire country of North Korea. The price of never again may be eternal vigilance, but we never expected to see so many opportunities on our own borders and elsewhere. This Jewish New Year, we seek to understand the world today by looking back. Our hatred of the other is very old, deeply rooted in our psyche, demonstrated over and over again in human history. Even today, no matter what anti-bullying policies are in place, school classmates are othered by religion, by ethnicity, by appearance, by name, by individuality. And what happens in seventh grade does not stay in seventh grade. It echoes in our minds and reverberates through society. Jewish history provides ample lessons in hatred. Sholem Aleichem's Tevye the Dairyman famously asked, if with all of this suffering we are still the divinely chosen people, once in a while choose someone else. The earliest anti-Semitic writers lived 2,000 years ago. We do not have their books, but we do have a rebuttal by the Jewish historian Josephus. Their accusations included that the Jews left Egypt not via divine exodus, but because they were expelled for being diseased and polluting. The Jews had to rest after walking for six days because the infections in their groins were too painful. Even Shabbat is given an insulting rationale. In another passage, a man is found captive in a secret room in the Jerusalem temple. He explains, The Jews did the same at a set time every year. 
They used to catch a Greek foreigner and fatten him up thus every year, then lead him to a certain forest and kill him and sacrifice with their accustomed solemnities and taste of his entrails and take an oath upon this sacrificing a Greek that they would always be enemies of the Greeks. 2,000 years ago, recognize these accusations? Pre-echoes of the medieval blood libel, libel, which accused Jews of killing Christians to use their blood, or even a modern version, Israelis stealing organs from captive Palestinians. That goes the round two. In some ways, it's the same old song that rhymes. And yet, we have still been shocked by the events of the past few years. Two fatal synagogue shootings exactly six months apart, when the previous American synagogue shooting death was over 40 years ago. Political campaigns depicting Jewish figures with piles of money. Progressive marches for human rights banning a rainbow flag with a Jewish star for being too similar to the Israeli flag while allowing other national symbols. It's all about the Benjamins, tweets one side. Beware the globalists, Facebook posts the other. We knew these attitudes existed on the fringes, though, as I said last year, 10% of Americans being anti-Semitic means 30 million people. Today, we see it more and more and wider and wider. In a supreme irony, we even see political opponents using the accusation of anti-Semitism as a weapon. I guess we could be flattered by the attention. After all, a world where explicit anti-Semitism is unacceptable is better than the alternative. On the other hand, our public square today is a bit like the boy who cried wolf. If any criticism of Israel is anti-Semitism, if any hard questions of global capitalism is anti-Semitism, then the effect of crying anti-Semitism is diluted, and real anti-Semitism gains a cover story. I don't hate Jews. I just hate those money-grubbing globalists who dominate the media and financial systems. We know who they mean. And it matters who says what. If someone famous says American Jews not voting with Israel are being, quote, very disloyal, many call that an anti-Semitic accusation of dual loyalty to both Israel and America. But if the Zionist Organization of America says American Jews should vote for what is best for Israel, we are less likely to cry anti-Semitism, even when we disagree. Today, we feel acutely that our Jewish extended family is not the only group facing hatred. The same people who claim religious sanction as they deny Jews and Catholics the chance to care for foster children, those same people also claim their religious beliefs let them deny gay couples equal treatment or deny women pregnancy termination medication or deny transgender and non-binary individuals basic dignity. You may have seen a story recently about a Mississippi wedding chapel that rejected an interracial couple, saying, we don't do gay weddings or mixed race because of our Christian race, I mean, our Christian belief. And I've not even touched on the treatment of immigrants, Latinos, Muslims, and many others. A rising tide of bigotry lifts all hatreds. Perhaps we can find common cause with other others also facing this deluge. Why do they hate us? Beware of simple answers or just one answer. Some hate Jews because we represent modernity and post-nationalism, breaking down borders and corrupting traditional values. 
Some hate Jews because we are too tribal and stick together too much in an era of broader sentiment. Why insist on a Jewish state when there should be no borders? Why be Jewish and not just human? Some hate Jews because they extrapolate from personal experience. A recent global survey of anti-Semitism found the highest rates of anti-Semitic beliefs in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. I will give you zero guesses why. Historically, Christians hated Jews because they believed the Jews rejected Jesus and took responsibility for his death. Many simply find the Jews a convenient scapegoat, other, for whatever they find wrong. Communists claimed we were behind capitalism. Fascists said we were behind communism. Nativists and white nationalists claim we are behind immigration. It's always easier to blame someone else for your own faults. Just like 2,000 years ago, today's anti-Semites also claim that all Jews hate all Goyim. And parts of the Arab world believe the Israeli Mossad caused 9-11 rather than accept any responsibility. After all, anti-Semitism is the unusual oppression that claims that the Jews are more powerful than they are. In this way, the disadvantaged may believe that Jews have all the power and are screwing them over, and they do not notice the ones who really have the power and are doing the screwing. There may have been, and there are, individual Jewish communists and Jewish capitalists, and Jewish internationalists and Israeli nationalists, tribal Jews and open-minded Jews, human rights Jews and ethno-chauvinist Jews. But anti-Semitism is like a psychopathology, a distorted lens through which reality is always sinister and always revolves around the Jews. If we are 2% of the population and 10% of U.S. senators are Jewish, we might take pride, while others see it as one more proof of Jewish conspiracy. Severe anti-Semitism has a self-contained answer for everything, and it is rarely amenable to argument. Consider the difference between some Jews have influence in Hollywood, and the Jews influence Hollywood. The first is sociology. The second is anti-Semitism. And to be very blunt, if there is a global Jewish conspiracy, this rabbi has never seen a profit-sharing check. <laughs> if we see the Jewish experience as one example of the human experience, maybe we have some lessons to share. Recall the Purim story. Having been told who Mordechai's people were, Haman plotted to, plotted to do away with all the Jews, Mordechai's people, throughout the kingdom. Esther saves her people by appealing to the king personal connections of, at a high level avert disaster. This model of high-level, behind-the-scenes intervention to avoid persecution was basic to medieval Jewish survival. In Eastern Europe, there was an officer called a shtadlan, or intercessor, who maintained good connections with the feudal lord who controlled how the Jews were treated. Even so, sometimes these court Jews were rejected and the Jewish population was expelled or worse. We know the limitations of one of my best friends is Jewish or Latino or gay. What would Stadlanut be today? There is no one king with whom to negotiate, so we would have to start by getting the Jewish community on the same page. This way, progressive Jews could have the talk to educate and inform the left, while conservative or libertarian Jews could highlight problems in their organizations with more credibility than those crazy socialists. This step is not working so well today. 
There is no Jewish consensus on what counts as anti-Semitism, let alone the best response. So each side of the Jewish political spectrum blames the other for not denouncing their own, rather than encouraging dialogue. Ilhan Omar and Donald Trump are like Jewish Rorschach tests. Which times and how often you have denounced them measures your Jewish character. We Jews contain multitudes, and that makes answering the anti-Semitism challenge that much harder. Twenty years ago, early on in the birth of the Internet, I found my name listed on a website that was called the Self-Hating Israel Threatening List. I'll say the name again so you can get the acronym. It was the Self-Hating Israel Threatening List. When I looked through the names of the rabbis listed on that list, the S-H-I-T list, I found I was in very good company. But the people who listed me there didn't think so. When Stadlanut, or high-level negotiation, had the goal of avoiding a pogrom's violence or an order of expulsion, we could all agree easily. Stadlanut is not as effective today because we are not all coming from the same place. We do not read the evidence the same way. We agree on either strategy nor ultimate goals. Another historical option to respond to anti-Semitism. In 1913, the Anti-Defamation League of B'nai B'rith, or the ADL, was founded. Its charter said, the immediate object of the League is to stop by appeals to reason and conscience, and if necessary, by appeals to law, the defamation of the Jewish people. Its ultimate purpose is to secure justice and fair treatment to all citizens alike and to put an end forever to unjust and unfair discrimination against and ridicule of any sect or body of citizens. It's a nice balance of a particularist focus on Jews with anti-Semitism as one example of an unacceptable hatred. One of the motivations to form the ADL was the trial of Leo Frank, an Atlanta Jew accused of killing a Christian girl. Also in 1913, a Russian Jew named Menachem Bayliss was tried for a full-on blood libel, accused of murdering a Christian child to use his blood to make matzah. By 1915, Bayliss had been acquitted, thanks to courageous non-Jewish prosecutors and journalists. But Frank had been killed by a lynch mob. Listen again to the ADL's goal, to stop by appeals to reason and conscience, and if necessary, by appeals to law, the defamation of the Jewish people. Rather than negotiate behind the scenes, this strategy confronted anti-Semitism among the people, in popular culture, and in the courts. Today we have Jewish community relations councils, Jewish federations, Jewish and Israel advocacy organizations that all use appeals to reason and conscience to counteract anti-Semitism. They have their successes, particularly in reaching their own community. There's a well-known story of two men lost on a desert island. One of them is frantically building signal fires and making signs on the sand on the beach, trying to attract attention, and the other one is sitting calmly under a coconut tree in the shade. And the frantic one says to the calm one, how can you be so calm? How are you going to know they're going to find us? And he says, don't worry. I haven't made my pledge to Federation yet. They'll find me. After a century of this work, has it changed hearts and minds among the population? Well, if you ask someone not involved in the Jewish community what they think of when they hear the word federation, 
they are most likely to answer Star Trek. <laughs> in the United States, in 1964, after 50 years of work by the ADL, 29% of Americans still held many anti-Semitic beliefs, as recorded in the ADL's first anti-Semitism survey. However, after 55 more years, today that number is down to 14%. One-third of Americans still think Jews are more loyal to Israel than to America, so it is not just President Trump or the Zionist Organization of America. Yes, appeals to reason and conscience, because sometimes they work. Remember that Mississippi wedding chapel that refused an interracial couple? Here's what the owner wrote on Facebook just a few days later. As a child growing up in Mississippi, our racial boundaries were unstated, were that of staying with your own race. On Saturday, my husband asked me to show him in the Bible where it was located as to the content concerning biracial relationships. I studied for a minute and began to think about the history of my learning this and where it came from. I was unable to recall instances where the Bible was used giving a verse that would support my decision. After searching for two days and sitting down with my pastor Sunday night after church, I've come to the conclusion my decision, which was based on what I had thought was correct to be supported by the Bible, was incorrect. All of the years I had assumed in my mind that I was correct, but have never taken the opportunity to research and find whether this was correct or incorrect until now. Sometimes minds can be opened. Direct confrontation started the wheels turning for this woman. And sometimes legal action is effective. After a libel suit in 1927, Henry Ford officially retracted his printing of The International Jew, The World's Problem. In 1997, the chief sponsor of the commercial-free airing of Schindler's List on broadcast television was the Ford Motor Company. But to be honest, we have been doing appeals to reason and conscience for a long time. 2,000 years ago, Josephus answered the story of the man fattened up for Jews to eat with these reasons. How is it possible that all the Jews should get together to these sacrifices? And the entrails of one man should be sufficient for so many thousands to taste of them? Yet the blood libel legend lived on, long past Josephus, like a prejudiced vampire continuing to draw blood. By 1948, some Jews were just sick and tired tired of being a minority, tired of hatred. They hoped that creating and living in a Jewish state might solve anti-Semitism. The Jews would be like other nations, with a government to advocate for them and armed forces to defend them. And if being a normal nation did not solve anti-Semitism, a Jewish state could be a crisis refuge, unlike the gates slammed in our faces in the 1930s. Israel did not work as planned either. It has been a refuge for hundreds of thousands of Jews fleeing persecution, especially from Arab lands and from the Soviet Union. Yet Israel has also become another trigger or another excuse for anti-Semitism. Creating Israel made justice for some at the expense of injustice for others. In the endless ironies of history, Israel in its current right-wing trend is now used as an example of the kind of ethnic exclusive state that white nationalists want. They might want to ship all American Jews there, but for them, tribalism is an ideal, even Jewish tribalism. There are times that criticism of Israel is fair, and there are times it crosses the line to anti-Semitism. 
We will explore how to distinguish this and respond on Yom Kippur. That vampire of anti-Semitism lives on. No one solution will stop a problem with many causes and little reason. Quiet government influence, public confrontation, appeals to conscience, deploying words as a defensive army, even deploying an army itself. We have to keep trying all of these because sometimes they work. We are not giving up our 10 Senator Stadlanim or closing the ADL or abandoning Israel as a refuge. What else can we do? I want to talk more about what we can do, what we can always do, no matter how large the problem, on Yom Kippur. But I want to give you two ideas tonight. First, there's another way to win the battle of ideas. Over a century ago, around the year 1900, two Jews were traveling on a streetcar in Vienna. And the first one is reading the local Jewish newspaper. The second one is reading the local anti-Semitic paper. The first says to the second, how can you read that trash? And the second one says, well, when I read your paper, everybody hates us, we're so oppressed and we're poor. When I read this paper, we own the banks, we run the government. (laughs) It's much more inspiring. (laughs) Never underestimate the power of laughter. In 2006, after the controversy about printing cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad, Iran held its own cartoon contest, in this case, a Holocaust denial cartoon contest. In response, an Israeli Jewish illustrator said that he would be running his own anti-Semitic cartoon contest. He said, we'll show the world we can do the best, sharpest, most offensive Jew-hating cartoons ever published. No Iranian will beat us on our home turf. (laughs) I have seen clowns as counter-protesters to white nationalists. I've seen artists adding to swastika graffiti to turn them into silly cartoons. In response to a provocative call to draw Muhammad that encouraged people to draw stick figures with sidewalk chalk and label them Muhammad just to be offensive, some Muslim student associations took their own chalk and drew boxing gloves on the stick figure and wrote Ali. So now it was Muhammad Ali. No problem. Not everything is laughable. And we should not make light of what is deadly serious. At the same time, Jewish laughter and our ability to make others laugh should be in the arsenal. Laughter is just one piece of a wider strategy. Confidence. Even as they chant, Jews will not replace us, we chant, we will outlive them. For Jews, this is not 1939, because the police are protecting us. But we must consider what we can or should do when the citizenship, safety, and dignity of others is in danger, even if we feel secure. If there is a political civil war brewing, can we argue for civility, or do we need to pick a side? We turn to that question tomorrow morning. From confidence comes hope. Hope is not a utopia, imagining a future without hatred. Hope is a positive view of what could be different, what can be better. Some of you may recall the last scene of Fiddler on the Roof, a moment of sadness or maybe not. The Jews of Anatevka and Eastern Europe have suffered pogroms, violence, and are finally expelled by anti-Semitic decree. Tevye's family is scattered, Siberia, Poland. He himself is going to New York, America. As he slogs through the mud, dragging his wagon, 
he hears a high-pitched violin. It is the fiddler playing his simple tune. Tevye looks back at this echo of his past. He gives a wry smile and an invitation to join him. With humor and confidence and our depth of history, we know what happens next because we are what happened next, a brighter future across a great ocean. L'Shana Tova, wishing us all a hopeful new year. The Kol Hadash podcast is a production of Repatriation Studios. This podcast was edited and produced by me, Ken Burke. Thanks for listening.